We view our phones as inanimate objects. But when we see robots such as the Boston Dynamics machines that move with a motion that almost seems like an animal, that robot becomes alive. It's a much different sense than we get from looking at an iPhone. We feel more sympathy and connection towards that robot. Today's episode is about the distinction between inanimate machines and machines that seem alive. Pico is a robot assistant similar to Amazon Echo or Google Home. It was built by Abhishek Singh as part of his thesis. Abhishek wanted to explore the border between inanimate electronics and the electronics that we personify. Pico is a cylindrical tube that bends slightly, like the human neck. At its head, it has a smartphone-sized screen that displays GIFs to reflect its feedback visually. Abhishek also has a company called Surround, which makes 360-degree video experiences. We explore the changes to engineering that are allowing someone like him to be involved in two cutting-edge projects at once, despite having very few employees working with him. We went deep on robotics, and we talked a little bit about this 360-degree video stuff. This was an energizing conversation. I greatly enjoyed talking to Abhishek. I really hope to have him on again in the future because he's got a lot of interesting things to say. And we'd love to hear your interesting things to say. We want to get your feedback on Software Engineering Daily. So please fill out the listener survey. It's available on softwareengineeringdaily.com survey. This is how we gather information to decide where we take this company. Also, Software Engineering Daily is having our third meetup, which is Wednesday, May 3rd at Galvanize in San Francisco. The theme of this meetup is fraud and risk in software, and if you're in the Bay Area, we would love to see you there. We're going to have great food, some great speakers, and a friendly intellectual atmosphere. You can find out more at softwareengineeringdaily.com slash meetup. Now let's get to this episode. Abhishek Singh is the founder of Surround, a 360-degree video company. He also built Pico, a robot assistant. Abhishek, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you. You have worked on two areas that I want to get into, robots and 360-degree virtual reality video. Let's start with robots. You built right. a robot assistant named Pico. Explain what Pico does. Yeah, all right. Uh, so I built, as you said, a robot assistant named Pico, who is essentially a voice-activated assistant who responds entirely through GIFs. And I'm just putting it out there. I call it GIFs. Some people call it GIFs. It's like to each his own. But yeah, so I call it GIFs. And you can kind of think of him as the love child of, say, Amazon Alexa and a Disney character. And I built him last year, kind of documented him several months later, put him up on Reddit, and it kind of just took off from there. So explain how the interaction between Pico and a human works and how it differs from that of Amazon Alexa, because it's a similar unit to Amazon Alexa. Maybe you could describe it yes. physically as well. Yeah, so definitely. Uh, it's As I said, it's like the love child of Amazon Alexa and a Disney character. So its similarity lies in the fact that it is a voice-based assistant. You speak to it and then it responds except as alexa responds through voice the query that you've asked pico instead responds through an appropriate gif so just an example if i was to ask him what the weather is in new york instead of saying the weather in new york is like light clouds with a chance of drizzle he'll pro show me a gif of a cloudy sky with like some drizzle happening and and my entire thing behind this was like it was more kind of like I mean, I guess to some extent it was like a thought experiment to kind of see that the entire debate that currently exists around social robo robotics is that how do we make these robots kind of emote? How do we make them uh, more approachable and relatable to us human beings? And I kind of thought that GIFs on one hand are kind of this universal language of sorts, and especially a universal language across the internet. And they're able to communicate everything from emotion to expression to information. So it would be kind of cool to see what a marriage of those two uh, turns out to be. So how you would interact with him, as I said, is you ask him a command or you ask a query uh, like you would to Alexa. And uh, he responds with a GIF, which is then displayed on what essentially is his face. So kind of to describe what he looks like, he's 
a relatively small desktop robot. He's like eight, just over eight inches tall. He has a flexible kind of bendable body which allows him to like twist and turn in different ways so there's actually a lot of like movement there's a lot of like non-verbal communication that also happens through him so he can move he can twist he can turn he can kind of bend uh, which adds to the information and the emotion that he's trying to express he has kind of a notification led on the top of his head, which is very uh, similar to what uh, Alexa has, which lets you know that he's actually paying attention to you or what kind of state he currently is in. And that kind of uh, supplements uh, the GIFs that he's showing, as well as the movement that he's doing. You've added two modalities of interaction to the Amazon Alexa slash Google Home model. One of those modalities is the visual GIF interface. It's a smartphone-sized screen that displays a pair of eyes. It looks like mm-hmm. Wally almost. And when you say something to Pico, he will fulfill your request, but he'll also display the GIF, and he will have some physical movement. Some I know you spent a lot of time working on the contortion that if you just imagine like a flexible like a flexible cylinder that can almost bend a little bit and the, those emotional characteristics add a real degree of I don't want to say humanity but I mean I saw a video where you yeah. said that humans have an innate desire to connect with robots and I exactly. am in, in complete agreement with this I'm probably you know my, my agreement I agree with this to the degree that uh, you know be, that goes beyond probably some opinions that I would feel comfortable expressing on the air. Yeah, <laughs> you, you 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 posed an interesting question, which is why do we personify something like Pico, which is just a GIF interface that moves around a little bit? It's almost like a little animatronic thing. Yes, but we see an iPhone as an inanimate object. So, what is the answer to that question? Where is the dividing line between what feels inanimate and what feels alive? Yeah, I know. I mean, it's kind of a. a, a I mean, I wouldn't say it's a fine line, but at the same time, it comes kind of naturally. Like when I see people interact with Pico, they almost always refer to Pico as either him or a her but like that's immediately like some sort of personification like you don't call your iPhone a him or her you call it kind of refer to it as I said like as it and I think that kind of comes with the combination of the things that I put uh, put into him is like it's like the semblance of personality it's obviously not a real personality but it's like the semblance of it actually having a personality like adding the face to it and and there have been studies that have been done on this that adding like a face uh, with eyes they kind of help people relate to him and at the same time i think a lot of the movement also gives this and and it's not robotic movement it's not like this like as you would imagine there's like this really like a cut and dry robotic movement i like spend a lot of time trying to figure out as you said this cylinder that could bend and twist in ways that would feel very very organic and it's kind of akin to what the human neck is and i think all of those together have kind of helped in creating this dividing line between it's still a device, but it's a device that people want to interact with. And it's a device that people, I mean, at least feel and are delighted by, and like they feel that it has some sort of personality. It's clear that from your thesis project, which is Pico, you were trying to accomplish a technical goal, which is this incredible feat of constructing from the ground up a basically an Amazon Alexa style thing in terms of feature robustness and the hardware work you put into it, the 3D printing, all of the different components that you had to sh- to order. But you were also, I think the higher level goal of this project was to provoke people's thought and to exactly. ex- and to explore what is unexplored in this in this medium. And I I feel like you really you're really provoking at the boundaries of what has been explored in terms of robotics and human-computer interaction. What were the goals with the thesis? What were the questions that you were trying to answer? I mean, yeah, exactly. Like you said, it kind of put it as in addition to seeing, I mean, undertaking it as a technical challenge and undertaking it as like a skill-building challenge. I also wanted to create something that would delight people 
like in a way through the interaction uh, that would get people thinking about what is currently being done and is this something that even if it's not a feasible robot is it something that can like you know well i guess spark some creativity or spark some thoughts in people's minds who are working on this because i've kind of seen that when people are working in social robotics or they're working on robotics that they're trying to make similar to human beings uh, they're either spending a lot of time a lot of resources in trying to mimic facial expressions so it's like through expensive complicated actuators and maybe that's not necessary right maybe you just need like a common language to communicate with and maybe that language is gifs because like gifs is something that all of us kind of relate to and it's 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 across cultures it's across languages it's, it's across all these things so using that to create a common language between a device and a human being was something that was extremely interesting to me and uh, some of the questions that i essentially wanted to answer was by adding this are we able to personify or are we able to add like some sort of personality to devices that are becoming more and more part of our lives on a on a daily basis like like i mean i personally think it's almost a certainty maybe it's not in the next 10 years maybe it's not in the uh, next 15 years but robots are going to move from where they currently are present is mostly like in manufacturing and industry and they start going to move into our homes i mean amazon alexa to some extent also can be considered a robot of some sort which has moved into our home so as that kind of happens we have to like consider the interfaces that we are building for these robots so that they become ingrained in our lives but at the same time at the same time like interacting with them on a daily basis is something that causes some amount of fun and delight you know and and that was the entire thing around it there's a video on youtube it's a, it's a movie that Ray Kurzweil made or he started and it's it's about the singular you know who Ray Kurzweil is right yes of course yeah, yeah. so so you know his singularity thesis yes. and his beliefs he's he's got some extreme beliefs about human computer interaction most of which i i think i actually agree with mm-hmm. uh, maybe not the timeline so much but one of the things that he said that has always stuck with me, he said in that movie, and you could find it, I think it's The Singularity is Near, I think it's that's the movie, it's like the movie version of that, but he talks about how robots are, an artificial intelligence, it's not going to be this non-emotional entity. It's going to be an entity that displays a scope of emotion that is wider than any organism before it and with pico you start to see this because you look at gifs as a as a medium of interaction the gifs like i mean giphy had this had this brilliant insight which is that there are all of these gifs throughout the internet it's almost like been this this compound interest function that's just been generating you know, gifts exactly. and gifts and gifts, uh, and then suddenly they realized, oh my goodness, there's this trove of gifts. Why don't we just stand up a search engine in front of it? And mm-hmm. they built a billion dollar business by just searching through gifts. But the the consequence of that is we've suddenly got this media format, and we're starting to communicate with with it. And the fact that Pico can query that search engine in probably a more sophisticated way than the average human can on the fly. Yeah. I mean, if I say a query, uh, in your examples, I mean, I could, you can tell me if I'm wrong, but yeah. in the examples I saw of you talking to Pico and Pico responding with a GIF, it seemed like Pico was really good at understanding the semantics of the query and responding with a GIF. And it would be like a some really obscure gif from Seinfeld or The Simpsons or something, and it would just be like, yes, you are capturing the moment visually in a way that no human would be able to. Like, you you would say something Mm -hmm. to to Pico, and it would respond by fulfilling your command as well as displaying, you know, a clip from The Simpsons that's totally silent, Yeah, but is not something that I would be able to exemplify through my own body language. So in some sense, this is the embodiment of what Kurzweil is talking about with the wider degree of 
emotional interaction that a robot can deliver, an artificial intelligence can deliver. Yeah, exactly. And and even if you like look at our own like kind of messaging patterns, like from text, uh, we're moving to emojis, and from emojis, we're using uh, moving to gifs. Is just because like they can communicate so much more in terms of expression and information in like such a condensed package and. And it's difficult to communicate sometimes emotions via text, right? It's difficult to communicate emotions via words. And imagine if it's difficult for us to do that, it becomes even more difficult for us to program robots to be able to do that. But using something as GIFs kind of gives them that ability. I mean, that ability still is not perfect. At, at times, I mean, it's not always that Pico shows the perfect GIF. Sometimes it might not be the case. But at the same time, because I have kind of built this bond with him and because I kind of like feel to some extent that he's just not just a device I'm way more forgiving of the mistakes that he makes and at, at times I mean I even enjoy the mistakes he makes to kind of see uh, <laughs> see what the result is you know coming out of it because like so, something that I feel is if you have an interaction with a device uh, the interaction is always consistent right you do X and you expect Y and you always kind of expect Y. And similar with Alexa, you ask her something, she will respond with the same answer no matter how many times you kind of ask that question. The thing is, it's the same with Pico. Like you will ask the question and you'll expect the same answer except the the method of communicating that answer will be different. It'll be either a different GIF, it might be like a different movement, it might be something else. But that keeps like the novelty alive and that also keeps like that fun and delight in the interactivity alive which I also feel kind of like separates it. Let's talk about the tech stack behind mm-hmm. Pico. Describe the hardware that Pico's composed of. Pico's brains are a Raspberry Pi 3, and he has two Arduinos, which... So Raspberry Pi 3 is basically like, as I said, the, the, the brain, and it controls uh, everything. It has two Arduinos. The Arduinos are responsible for the actuation, so the movement, as well as as the LED notifications. So the actuation is controlled by six servo motors, which are the base, which essentially form a Stuart platform. And a Stuart platform is uh, something that is used or was uh, used a lot in like these flight simulator uh, kind of seats that would allow six degrees of freedom. So I created like a really minified version of that and kind of stuck him, uh, stuck it into his body, which allows him to move with six degrees of freedom. In addition to that, there are like uh, there are four mics, and these are custom-built microphones kind of placed around in an array which allow him to kind of listen even if you're like speaking from like behind him or from the side of him. And there's a camera right under his face and that allows him to actually capture GIFs. So, so you can like take a, tell him to uh, capture a picture but instead of a picture because he's completely GIF-centric, he captures like a three-second GIF and then you can either share it or do whatever you kind of want with it. And um, his flexible body is actually made, so his entire body, uh, most of the body is 3D printed and the center cylindrical section of his body which allows him to bend and move is made out of like a flex- flexible uh, fabric. What's the workflow for getting all of that hardware wired up properly and getting the 3D printing done? Because I assume as you were design, I mean, software people have it easy for for software engineers who are who like you know yeah. will pass judgment on engineering of other types. We have it easy because you just click build and it makes a new build and it's fine. It garbage collects the old one. That yeah. is not the case with hardware. Yeah, I know. I I know. I, I wish it was much easier to iterate on hardware once you make a mistake. But once you make a mistake with hardware and you've like printed that part or you're like included that part, you're kind of just stuck with it. So I, I mean, there's a, there's a significant portion of software. I mean, not to be wrong, like without the software, the hardware is kind of useless, right? Because the software is what brings the hardware to life. But the hardware and the software kind of go like, Together, the hardware is kind of set in stone. Once you do that, you can keep improving on the software, but then the software is limited by what hardware you've kind of set in. So the hardware is kind of the build process was definitely complicated. I think that the toughest, the toughest or the most difficult or challenging part of the entire process was kind of balancing the sourcing of the parts with the design that I wanted, uh, because sometimes parts that I wanted in the size that I wanted were not available. So I had to keep like kind of adjusting my design based on what was available and at the same time kind of source these parts from like different parts of the world. At the end of it, I think I got like parts from like I think nine or 11 countries uh, across the world. 
and i think ba- balancing that like figuring out the final design based on the parts that I had access to was the toughest thing because it it was like fine balance okay like this is the design i like and this is the design i can achieve based on the parts that i have but eventually i was really happy with the result it, this was definitely the longest period and i spent the most time ensuring that the design and the final form worked perfectly before actually printing it out because 3d printing also is not, it's, it's not that long a process i mean this entire 3d print took like 72 hours to do but it is an expensive process so i would i definitely didn't want to repeat that process uh, just because i forgot to put like a screw hole somewhere or some parts didn't kind of fit so i'm happy to say that i printed it only once in the end but it was only after ensuring completely in a cad program that everything kind of fit together everything was positioned exactly like it should be that i went ahead with the uh, the printing process and this was including ensuring that all the parts that i would source even though i didn't have the source parts i would create like 3d models of them and place them into the cad file to know that they would fit perfectly in the areas that were designated for them the 3d printing part is largely decoupled from the software and hardware engineering and it sounds like the cad program is a pretty good bridge between those parts of the engineering can you describe how the CAD software integrates with the software and hardware design process? So for the CAD program, to be honest, like I did not have any experience with the 3D CAD program prior to taking on this build. So I kind of learned along the way. So there's actually, I mean, you can kind of, if you see some of the documentation online, you can see the progression of my skills through the build process. Like I started with basically simple placing simple cubes uh, to being able able to create the final form factor. But in terms of like integration, as I said, it was a fine balance between figuring out the parts that I have access to and the form factor and the size that I wanted. So the process was like, say I wanted to include like the Raspberry Pi and the two Arduinos and my custom printed circuit boards. I would create 3D replicas, I would create like uh, 3D CAD models, uh, replicas of the exact dimensions of all these parts. So so once I created the exterior, I would place the parts exactly in the positions that I expected to place them. So I created 3D uh, models of essentially everything from the servos to the servo arms to the Raspberry Pi to the screen and to my own custom circuit boards to the LED ring. So basically anything that went into the final model and uh, that went into the final prototype was first 3D modeled and placed um, in a CAD environment to know that every millimeter was being used efficiently and that everything would be guaranteed to fit eventually. Because a lot of the back and forth was on trying to reduce the size uh, and trying to bring him down to a form factor in which that if I kept him next to my laptop, he would look he would look good next to it. So I didn't want him to be too large. I didn't want him to be kind of too small. So it was just about shaving millimeters and I started off by shaving centimeters and shaving millimeters and just just continue shaving till essentially everything can only fit if I put it in a certain way. And that's about it. You know, the use case. So when I first saw Pico, I was like, okay, this is some triviality. But mm-hmm. the use case of having a little robot next to you on, you know, as you're working in front of your laptop or in front of your desktop computer, you know, I put my phone down in front of my, right next to my laptop, because the phone is a great feed of things that are going on in my life. You know, you, exactly. s- you see that lock screen, and it's just got all your notifications. And so, uh, I exactly. mean, I assume I assume you do something similar. You put your phone down right next to your computer, and when you get a little calendar buzz, you know, you don't have to context switch to another part of your workflow. You can just glance at your phone. And so this is something where Pico or something like Pico could actually be really useful. Uh, Yeah, uh, definitely. So so that is why I've like kind of built in or I'm building in a lot of these interactions, like kind of like uh, just like a quick calendar notification or see whose email kind of notification kind of came in from. Because at the time that I was building him, there was a feedback from some people that I should instead of building him like the way I built him, like to be essentially an independent moving uh, computer, except housed in this robotic kind of form, I could 
perhaps just make him like a holder for my phone, right? And put my phone into him and build an application just for my phone. But I, I felt that was kind of like restrictive because if I get a call, then I now have to reach into him, pick my phone out and now kind of like speak on my phone. And, and that interaction just felt a little jarring to me. So I wanted him to be a completely independent unit, uh, which would supplement a lot of the, th- the thing that we use on the phone, like just like a quick glance, except provide those same notifications, provide that same information in a more fun and engaging way, you know? Mm-hmm. So we, ha- we have him kind of sitting there. I'm still doing my work. He's keeping track of also uh, the work I'm, I'm kind of doing. So at the same time, I'm also like building in the thing that he knows when to disturb me or he knows when I should not be disturbed. And that's mm-hmm. something that perhaps uh, a phone might find difficult to do. What's the software stack? So the software stack he's built completely using web technologies, but it's packaged using this application by GitHub, which is called Electron, which allows you to use web technologies to build essentially native apps. So since he's running on a Raspberry Pi, it's uh, uh, Electron is then compiled to be like on a, a, a native Linux application. In addition to that, obviously, he's got the Arduinos, so that's written in C. And there's some amount of Python also that is doing some specific things such as like f- finding out the length of a GIF so he so it no- he knows how many times to display it. Because those are also things like you kind of need to take into consideration. Like some GIFs are relatively short. Some GIFs are relatively long. So a short GIF is something that you're more likely to miss. So it needs to be repeated a couple of times longer, um, a couple of times more than say a long GIF, which is like seven or eight seconds long, which it, it's kind of fine. You don't want to see that twice. So Python is used a lot for like kind of scraping, kind of those things, but most of the application is Electron, which is essentially HTML, JavaScript, Node, and CSS. The command that you speak to Pico is outsourced to the Google Speech API. Can you give an explanation for the parsing and the yeah. response. Just give me like end-to-end yeah. okay. process of, uh, of, of a command. It, it isn't immediately streamed. So, I mean, uh, there are a lot of like privacy concerns when it comes to Amazon and when it comes to Google. Is it like continuously streaming everything that you're saying? Is it listening in on everything? So I purposely, I mean, I still need to use Google, but what I, I do is... I instead wait for the keyword Pico to be heard using an offline keyword detection. And only after the word Pico is heard is like a short stream sent off to Google, uh, which is basically kind of to some extent ensuring that what is being streamed out to an external service is only being streamed out when the user has expressly wanted that to happen. So what happens is as soon as you say the word Pico, I'm using an offline keyword detection engine to listen for that specific word. As soon as that specific word is heard, you can say the rest of the command, which is streamed out to a Google speech engine, which returns basically a text transcription of the entire audio. And based on the text transcription of the audio, I currently am tokenizing the input that comes in and passing out uh, what I like to call like an intent from it. So if just an example, if it contains like stuff like, hello, how are you? Then I kind of know that the intent is some sort of greeting. Based on that, either query remotely for GIFs, which means I normally use Jiffy for my external queries. If that query is returned successfully, he will display the appropriate GIFs after uh, after finding out how long he should uh, display that GIF for. If it's not the case, then he will show some sort of error message which will also be in the form of kind of a gif when i said remotely for gifs it's actually like so i have two systems he can either query for gifs remotely or he can query for gifs locally which are basically gifs which are stored on the local file system and he can switch back and forth between those two depending on the internet connectivity so sometimes going querying out a gif from a remote system and getting it back can be can take a few seconds longer especially if your internet is not really good so in that case he queries the local file system for being a little more responsive in his replies i want to talk more about pico closer to the end of the show but i wanted to discuss surround which is a platform that you're working on to easily create and share 360 video streams this is exactly. spelled S-V-R-R-O-U-N-D for people who are curious and want to check it out. There's a really cool demo on your website. Mm-hmm. Explain how Surround works. Okay, so um, as you said, so Surround is a platform that we have built to create and share 
what we like to call like augmented live uh, 360 video. So 360 video just uh, for people who are kind of curious is video that you can look around in all directions. So it's it's captured using a specific kind of 360 degree capable camera, which is capturing, uh, which in most cases is like two fisheye lenses back to back and which are capturing like an extended kind of 180 degree view. And then that's kind of stitched together. So we have kind of created this platform that allows people to live stream quickly. So you can kind of think of it. Um, well, I mean, yeah, you, you can kind of think of it like a periscope for uh, 360, except that it's not just about streaming it live, but it's also about augmenting what you're streaming live. So we've built an extremely sim a simple kind of like simple to use a web toolkit which allows people to augment the stream at, in real time as they're streaming it out so you can like layer the stream with because the thing with 360 video is that it gives you much more real estate as compared to 2d video and the other thing that it does is that it puts the viewer in control as compared to what we're normally used to in which this person who's streaming or the editor is in control of what you kind of see and the fact that it gives you access to so much more real estate is that you can utilize that real real estate in creative ways depending on what you're kind of streaming out. So so we give people like the tool set to be able to, well, augment and utilize that 360 space. So just as an example, you can embed rich text into the entire scene. So another example, like if you were to say, create like a virtual newsroom of sorts, right? You could essentially embed virtual screens in the entire 360 studio that you're, that you're streaming out of. Some of the streams could be showing infographics. Some of the streams could be showing other live streams coming out from the field. Some of the streams could just be showing images which are being sent in by users. And all of this is also then supplemented with like say a live chat of people who are then viewing what is happening they can interact directly with the streamer and get like a response practically like in real time so, so like the use cases for this kind of kind of plenty it's just a completely new medium and people are kind of still figuring out what they can do with it and how they can kind of utilize it but we want to make the creation and the distribution of this kind of content which is like interactive immersive as easy for people as possible Are you pursuing Surround as a full-time endeavor at the same time that you pursue Pico? Yes. So I admire that. And I want to talk about that some because, so, I mean, this is something I do, basically. Um, I mean, I, you know, Software Engineering Daily is a full-time job, sort of, or it's mm -hmm. a project that takes up a ton of time. But I also have a company that I work on called Ad for Prize, and I, I, there are four people working with me on that and I'm doing both of these things and if you read most of the startup literature or productivity literature people say you should focus on one thing do one I thing know. really yeah. really well but <laughs> I've I've heard that a lot so, yes so for many so I think for many people that does make sense like if you feel like you can't yeah. get your footing in life yes focus on one thing but when you start to feel pretty productive, when you feel like you get the ball rolling and you want to start a different project, if you are somebody who's really dedicated to technology and you're plugged into technology, there has been a change recently. And that change mm -hmm. is that our technology is getting so high leverage. You look at Amazon, Instacart, Slack, these things subtract the amount of time that you have to allocate to annoying everyday tasks and it, they free up your time you can outsource yep. really annoying stuff uber is another thing you can outsource driving and with that freed up time you can do more exactly um and i also feel like it it, it works differently for like different people for some people as you said it kind of works to like put your head down and focus on one thing but for me personally like i've always kind of been interested in a ton of thing being fascinated by a ton of thing and wanting always wanting to like experiment with a bunch of things and also for me i feel like some of my best projects or best work kind of come out at the intersection of seemingly like disparate things which i, I don't know if they'll ever work together but at some point of time they kind of do like even like just to like go back a bit to like kind of pico is like like pico kind of existed at the intersection of like 
completely unrelated things. At least of, of when you look at it, it would be completely unrelated things. So it's like, oh, I really like GIFs. I really like building things by hand. And I really like animated movies. And Pico kind of sat at the intersection of these three little things. So like if you, if you like to draw that Venn diagram, like that tiny little intersection where those three circles intersect is where kind of Pico existed. So, so for me, I personally always like taking on new challenges and taking on different project, uh, projects because I feel at some point of time, all that is going to come into one project. And, and the project that will be, that project uh, is something that I would like a lot. Or maybe it's just a company. It's a, maybe it could be a conglomerate. Exactly. You know, you exactly. find I, there's obvious synergies that could occur between yeah. Pico and Surround. You know, Abhishek, the, the thing that comes to mind is the technology companies that have been developing over the past decade, two decades, they rely on a steady influx of talented technologists who will come and work at the technology company on something super boring. And mm-hmm. people like you and I, there is nothing special about either of us. I'm I'm sure that you feel like you just got your knowledge from reading stuff on the internet and tinkering <laughs> yeah. and executing. There is no like genetic specialty to what you or I do. Exactly. It, ma- it makes me it makes me wonder. I mean, and and also the number of opportunities that I think of on a daily basis where I'm like, God, I wish I had time to pursue this. I'm sure you have the same feeling. There's no shortage (laughs) of opportunities. There's no shortage of opportunities. So my question is, how the heck are these companies, these giant corporations, going to keep being able to recruit people when you can just go off and tinker on your own and have something like Pico or Surround and that becomes the thing that you are completely in charge of? Yeah, I mean... Yeah, I mean, uh, that's definitely the thing. I, I don't know how these companies, like these companies can obviously attract a lot of talent because I guess to some extent, I, I wouldn't say all the projects that they're working on are boring. And I don't think everybody who goes in there doesn't get some say or some kind of ownership over what they're kind of building. At the same time, like you have to kind of pay the bills, right? So it's not, uh, I mean, in an ideal world, it would be great if everybody can just kind of work on the things that they're passionate about um, and earn a living from it. But I don't think that's always the case. Um, and at the same time, I think for some people, working in one of these companies does kind of expose you to a network of people. Well, well, a really good network of people in a one, a network of like kind of, kind of smart people. And also just, um, you can do it two ways. Like you can either spend two years tinkering around figuring out stuff for yourself and learning there or as most people do is you kind of learn on the job so again i I think it's like different strokes for different people basically no i completely agree and i I didn't mean that as a statement to denigrate anybody that goes to work work at these places i'm just i think in more more in terms of you know the big companies that i've seen they have Mm -hmm. so much stuff that needs to be maintained just to keep the lights on exactly like the deal the deal of like going to work at one of these companies and do maintenance work is just getting worse and worse and worse relative to mm-hmm. what you can do on your own for you know yeah. just exploring and yeah. anyway i i don't know it'll yeah, be I interesting mean, I, to watch. I guess yeah it'll be interesting to see I, I i guess it just depends completely on the kind of person you are like there's some people who I think work at these companies and at the same time are spending a lot of time on their own projects on the side. There's some people who are kind of happy working for, for these companies and and like making an impact through that. And I guess for some people like us, sure. it's completely different. Sure. Yeah. You look at Yahoo though. Like Yahoo, I yeah. think of as the earliest example of a company that became a technology utility, right? Like Yahoo yeah, exactly. Mail. Exactly. And then exactly. as the brain drain started to happen... Uh oh, massive security breaches. Uh oh, like mm-hmm. very simple mistakes that people made. And I really hope that this doesn't happen to the other big yeah. companies that have become uh, so much more fundamental to our everyday life. I know, I know. It, it kind of feels like uh, the, the world's just made, made up of a couple of monopolies at this point of time. But uh, yeah, it, it's kind of uh, true. But I guess a lot of that also depends on, I think, one is if they continue innovating at a pace. Like, I feel if they stop innovating at any point of time, that's kind of like a death blow to them. And also, like, the culture they uh, they continue to maintain. So I feel that 
maybe Yahoo got complacent. I mean, they had inter- 80% of browser homepages was Yahoo at one point of time. I mean, and to imagine at that point of time, like to fall from that, it's it's difficult to imagine. Like who would have thought that would kind of happen? But complacency, lack of innovation, and like I think a change in culture, and then that's kind of a death blow. What are your predictions for how VR and AR will make their way into the mainstream? VR and AR, I mean, mainstream, like, it's kind of everybody is kind of predicting the same, right? Is that VR's main adoption, early adoption, which which we're also kind of seeing is going to be in gaming. And AR is going to be, is going to be bigger. It'll take uh, VR kind of longer to kind of find its footing, uh, which I do agree to some extent with is that it is still a relatively new market and even though we are trying people we and people in general haven't really found that perfect kind of use case you know it's like that one thing which just like everybody's like oh because of this i need to go out and pick up a a bio vr headset for myself (laughs) you know it's that that one one kind of like big use case that comes out uh, that makes people like just just do that at this time people who are kind of uh, who even have a vr headsets like there might be a lot of like a lot of like facts and figures about the number of vr headsets that in the market but the ultimate thing is that repeat use is not there so i might have a vr headset but like putting it on and using it regularly on a daily basis like i use my phone or as i use my laptop uh, it just isn't there yet and we have to like kind of help people build the content which which kind of influences people to do that and that's why we are kind of building a tool set which allows people to like easily and quickly like create content experiment and see what works and what kind of kind of doesn't and yeah so till we get people to use it a lot it's difficult to say when I go to the surround homepage and I mess around with just the demo that you have, mm-hmm. and yeah. also when I have the the couple times where I've tried VR, it is so engaging. It is exactly. almost scary to me how engaging and how fun and how eye opening it is. It's it's like a drug. Yeah, I, I mean, I have I've spoken to like a few people and they've said exactly this: is that it's it's like such a it's like the first time you put on a VR headset or the first time you kind of see something like it's like a completely wow moment like it's the, it's something you haven't seen in a really long time or you've never yeah. seen in your life right yeah. it completely like like blows you over i, I would i and, would describe it as an almost religious experience exactly uh, but the thing is like when you come back next and you're shown the same experience it's not blowing you over anymore now you hmm. now you want to see something more and that's hmm. where the problem of content comes in is that until there's good content which is which people are like willingly putting on the headset repeatedly on a daily basis. That's where, that's where I personally feel the industry is kind of lacking. Of course, content yeah. is a feasible yeah. problem. Content to solve. is king, exactly. Yeah, I mean, uh, sorry, go sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, no. content is an easy problem to solve. Utility is a bit harder, but mm-hmm. I think you'll agree with me that the utility of VR will emerge eventually. Perhaps, yeah, definitely. Per- perhaps after. You know, there's still, I feel like there's still like some maybe rendering issues that VR has to overcome, or maybe we need WebAssembly to get these things smoothed out. What about well, I, AR? I don't think, yeah, I don't think technology is going to be the limiting factor. Okay. Like technology is something that can be overcome, right? Like like the, the amount of billions of dollars of money and resources that are being put in, that are being put in by the largest companies in the world. So I don't think that is going to be a factor it's ultimately what the consumer kind of likes if you can create something that delights the consumer and if you can create something that brings continuously brings them back then that's what they're going to do abhishek i can tell you you think a lot about where we're going and where these technologies asymptote towards the questions i have been asking myself a lot recently are what are the fundamental cultural practices that are going to change when we get things like artificial general intelligence that seems human-like or beyond human, robots that are implementing that artificial intelligence, fully immersive VR along with utilities to make that VR practical, augmented reality. The number of trends that are nearing i mean that are impacting us day-to-day basis speech recognition 
speech yeah. mimicking, video mimicking, video recognition. It is too much to handle for our for our current culture. <laughs> our culture is going to shift. Our society exactly. is going to shift. Yeah. It's going to affect. It's going to shake the perception we have around relationships, around marriage, even around employment, around our sense of what is reality, or our sense of religion. There are so many things that are on the precipice of change. What exactly, are, I think. What are yeah, the most I, salient I mean, examples of that? What are the things that keep you awake at night or keep you excited all the time? I think the things that keep me excited. I, I mean, exactly this. I, I feel like like all these technologies that you like. I mentioned, like if you take like AR, VR, if you take like artificial intelligence, machine learning, like they are relatively old technologies. It's just that I think like now we are the like at that tipping point because a number of factors are working in in their favor is like for for ai we have we finally have computers that are fast enough to do things and we have enough data to kind of do things with for vr also we finally seeing a lot of these issues that used to um, exist with earlier vr headsets kind of now, now being tackled so we're definitely as i said we're on the tipping point and i personally feel that over like the next 5 or 10 years like everything is going to change completely. Like the biggest change for me personally, I think is going to come through artificial intelligence. And the things that we can't even like imagine it's going to do, it's, it's going to be able to do. VR and AR, yes, definitely it's going to change completely like the way we kind of work, the way we kind of engage, the way we kind of even like something as something like maintaining long distance relationships or like being able to like kind of teleport ourselves into locations that we never thought were possible previously like imaginable so maybe it completely changes the way we travel or experience things or like go to concerts or go to like sporting events and even like in terms of like ai maybe it's not robots in the next five or ten years entering our homes but just i think like the proliferation of ai and all the products that we use will completely lead to like a new form of interaction a new form of interaction in which maybe we don't even have to click a button anymore to ask for something maybe we just uh, like shown the information that we need at that specific point of time it's difficult to comprehend and it's difficult to even like envision what would be possible all i can say for sure is that what we are seeing today and what we'll see like five or ten years from now will be it's kind of like seeing an iphone compared to a flip phone from like a ten ten years ago that's what I, I feel would be the change, like in not only like in the internet, but in all of these technologies. Right, and when I think about how this changes my everyday behavior, I think about things like getting a mortgage, or investing in retirement, or marriage. These sorts of long-term commitments that are based on a world that will no longer exist in five or ten years. And it makes me wonder, what are the fundaments of society that we should even be keeping track of today? I mean, should we just keep yeah. operating uh, like <laughs> like we should be getting? Yeah, I'll get a mortgage. Yeah, I'll get. Yeah, yeah, I'll plan for retirement when robots are just going to be taking care of me anyway, <laughs> just because it's socially acceptable. Yeah, I'll get married yeah. just because it's socially acceptable, even though. Perhaps a robot mate will be more appealing in five or ten years. I mean, yeah. these are realities that we're going to yeah. have to deal with. And it's like you can't even really – it's almost taboo to talk about taking yeah. these things to the extreme philosophically or anticipatorily. But we're going to get there. It's crazy. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's super exciting. Like, at the same time, like, there's a completely – I mean, I know it's a valid uh, point of view is that – it's going to completely change the entire job market. Like it's to completely change the entire employment market. It's going to make jobs that are currently necessary completely redundant. And yeah, it's going to affect employment like something we probably never like seen before. But at the same time, I kind of feel that, okay, if it's going to affect employment in that way, it's going to not only create new jobs which, do, which, will, which will emerge out of this entire thing, but it'll also free up people like you said like uber uber instacart amazon they're like freeing you up from like mundane uh, repetitive tasks it's going to free up people from all these tasks that they're now free to completely devote their energies and creative pursuits towards their passions so it's it's going to have a it's going to be a really bumpy rocky ride <laughs> <laughs> but but i'm 
and it's going to change things in ways like none of us can even like imagine right now and i don't know maybe it happens in 5 years maybe it happens in 10 years but i'm pretty sure it's going to happen i i i don't know i'm i'm super excited to see what happens and i'm super excited to like continue building in like these fields which i feel are going to definitely kind of have this kind of impact yeah okay i and we're nowhere nearing the end of our time have you started delegating anything because you i know you've been a lone hacker on your earlier projects uh, mm-hmm. one thing i have found you know software engineering daily i i started it just by myself but uh, same thing with with adforprize the other product i work on but as i have brought on other people to work with it has become so much more enjoyable it's become so much easier there's so many things i'm bad at that other people yeah. are better at have you started to to bring on other people or delegate uh, so so surround is actually like a four person team at this point of time so so it was three of us who co-founded it and there's another person who's like working with us full time so so luckily it's not a single person team i definitely agree that you can't do everything yourself and it's it's much better to let people who are like experienced in something and also much more enjoyable to work in that fashion pico as of now till now has been a completely single person project but at the same time i have kind of open sourced uh, everything so open sourced like the hardware design the software all that kind of stuff so people have started contributing people have been getting in touch people have been trying to build uh, their own version of pico like across the world so i'm hoping th- that's how contributions start coming in and additions in terms of features and skill sets start happening when people are people are creating something that they need and putting it into pico and then sharing it with the community. Right, we didn't even get into the pico modules. We didn't even get into the discussion <laughs> of whether pico is going to be the open source Amazon Alexa or Google Home. Certainly well, I seems hope like so. it, it certainly seems so. like it has a reasonable chance of of uh. becoming one of those things. Anyway, all right, we're out of time. Abhishek, really interesting stuff. I I feel we're pretty like-minded on a lot of stuff. If you ever have any interest uh, in coming back on if you have any other, you know, I'm sure you'll have a new project in another month or so. So uh, <laughs> yeah. feel, feel free to come yeah. back on. I, I'd love to have another conversation with you. I will definitely do that. Okay. Thanks so much. This was really fun. Great. Okay. Agreed. Agreed.